Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan. This week our show is a little special. It's very special, actually. We're going to be talking about the Artsy Art Genome Project. So here to tell us a little bit about what that is, is Sarah Gottesman at Genomer. Hey, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. And uh, we're welcoming back longtime friend of the show, Tess Thackra. Hi, Isaac. So first up, what is the Art Genome Project? We'll take a look at one of Artsy's coolest teams, I think. And Sarah will tell us what they do and how they do it. Then we're going to have a little bit of a Art Genome Project inspired game. And finally, we'll talk a bit about the history of color and art. It's something we maybe don't think about when we're looking at a painting, but it's there. It's important. And uh, it's deadly a little bit. Okay. First up, Sarah, what is the Art Genome Project? It's a good question. And it's a hard Thank one. You. And I always answer it a little bit differently because the Art Genome Project has many applications on our site. Um, but essentially, the Art Genome Project is modeled after Pandora's Music Genome Project. And the goal was to be able to have some kind of recommendations in the art world. So you like Pablo Picasso, you might like Henry Matisse and things that are art historical, but also more surprising. And basically, we do this by trying to map all the characteristics of art. Sounds easy. Sounds straightforward. It's not so bad. So how do you come up with these categories? Yeah, so we have over a thousand categories on the Art Genome Project. Um, ranging from things like subject matter, or art movements, and techniques. And luckily for us, we have hundreds of years of art history on our side that we've been categorizing art for a long time, saying that something is fauvism or cubism, but we also have to come up with some new categories to catch up with art today. So it seems like just, you know, imagining how you do this, there's got to be a lot of tough, you know, decisions, what's, you know, what falls in a movement, what falls out of a movement. I guess I can start with kind of what seems like a very benign example, uh, fresco. And so for those who don't know, fresco is a painting technique that dates all the way back to the ancient Greeks. And it's basically a technique where you apply pigments to wet plaster and then the pigment fuses with the wall. And that's why we have these paintings from long, long time ago. For example, Robert Rauschenberg used fresco panels um, to do photographic transfers on them. So he calls these a fresco, but by our basic technique of what a fresco painting is, he's not really using the technique of fresco. He's using it more like a medium. Or there are traditions in Chinese wall painting and the Renaissance where they're applying pigments to dry plaster or those frescoes. And so we have to draw a line around these terms somehow so that we can apply them consistently. And we want to do that with as much intention as possible. So there's a lot, you know, it's the minutia that it's matters. It's the you. minutia. And if it, this is the debate over fresco, you can imagine what happens when we're talking about what is feminist art or mm -hmm. contentious terms like outsider art and things like that. And are you also, I know you're constantly adding new categories, but are you also dissolving old ones that might not be relevant anymore? Oh, yeah. Um, both for those that maybe aren't relevant or weren't so clear. Like for a long time, we had a spirituality gene, which was kind of for artists that don't really fit into Christian art or related to religion. And it was more about artists into meditation or things like that. And we just oh boy. did not know how to <laughs> apply that one. And so that that's now a goner. How do you apply, um, I mean, does this classification system take into account the more sort of subjective qualities of art, like, I guess, the more poetic aspects? Hmm. Well, we do have some, <laughs> it's a good question, because we try not to make qualitative judgments about a work of art. We're not saying if something is like, this is a, not, this is a beautiful art and this is not a beautiful art. Part of what we consider makes a good gene or a good category is that our whole team 
which can be 20 genome or strong, can all apply that term in the same way so that it is as concrete as possible and that each category can only mean one thing. It does require our genomers to make interpretations about works of art, um, about the concepts they're dealing with that might not always be there on face value. You must get into some pretty fun debates. Yeah, are there big. <laughs> what, was there like? A, has there been a gene that's really caused a rift in the in the team? <laughs> a, a big schism. Well, we all have genes that we wanted to to make it in and haven't yet. You know, those fail. We pr- propose genes all the time, and they go by the team. Sometimes we try to use them for a while, but if they fail, they fail. And I think we all have held on to some for a long time. Like, I'm trying to get one passed that doesn't really have a name, but there are a lot of works on Artsy that are kind of like these hanging matrices of beads that then become like a hanging emoji or a toilet <laughs> or something very bizarre. <laughs> but it's there. What and would the name of that gene be? That's the question. If it's like 3D pixelation, I don't know. Maybe announcing it here will make it go through. Yeah, this is your some vote public, matters. This is some public. Part. Please tweet tweet at us. Um, some of the categories to me feel like they could become too large in a way. For instance, politics. Yeah, you know, like how do you define what is political and what's not? And part of the answer to that is that when we apply categories to works of art and to artists, which we do separately, we apply them at a scale of zero to 100. So it's not a tagging system. It's not like someone is political or not. Someone can be political at a level of 20. Someone can be political at a level of 100 to try to add some nuance to the algorithm that's figuring out, hey, you like this, you might like this too. You you guys, we got some feedback for our labels podcast from the, mm-hmm. from the Art Genome Project, a little bit of of you know that you guys were, were sort of saying you know this is this is what you do all the time yeah and i had a little bit of fomo on that podcast we're, we're well we're glad to make up for that but so when you're approaching um one of these labels how are you sort of thinking about it you know like how do you not how do you not create something that's reductive it's something that we're very aware of we're not saying that a work of art or an artist is a complete list of 25 terms we also know that terms can be very contentious for example we've ha- we have genome meetings every week And recently we've been inviting some artists to talk about the genomes that we've ascribed to them and confront them straight on. And we had an artist named Ben Wiener come and he creates works with chemicals that change surfaces. And we had science applied to his work because that's what he's involved with. And he said he really did not want to be labeled a science artist. And so, you know, how do you go from here to there? Because some of these terms definitely have some connotations to them. Do they get to, you know... Is the artist word final or something no. you take it under advisement? Sorry, artists out there. The artist word is not final, but we <laughs> do want to take them into account. Right. Just like an, how an artist defines what being a feminist is or being a science artist would differ, differ from artist to artist. And we really want to keep those definitions rock solid. I think one of the, you know, what you hear people say these days is unlike in the past, there's no movement anymore. Like contemporary art is diffuse. Like everyone's doing a ton of different things it's scattered but we have something like the art genome project that kind of lets us have a glimpse at maybe some trends in contemporary art oh yeah we have a thousand categories that you can trace from back in the day to today and some are definitely more prevalent today so what are some of the things that you've noticed as a genomer happening now in contemporary art like sort of interesting mini movements if you will yeah so as a team we've genomed which means that we've gone through and researched artists and artworks, 300,000 artworks, 25,000 artists, and we've noticed some interesting and maybe even bizarre connections among them. 
One of my favorite categories is contemporary archaeological, and this is a category for contemporary artists who are mimicking archaeological objects of the past or imagining what the archaeological objects of the future might be. And so this is a name I might butcher, but Julien Charrier um, creates what looks like these geological formations that he puts in glass vitrines, but they're actually made out of molten uh, computer parts like hard drives. And so it's like, what are you people digging up in the future? Another one that I love is Old Master Influence Fantasy, uh, which we created because we realized that there are a lot of artists working today uh, creating works that look like old masters, which are the artists uh, that were working up until the late 19th century. So you might have something that looks like a Renaissance portrait of a woman, but she is covered in flowers in a whimsical environment wearing a mask that makes her look like a bird. Well, going off some of the genes that you use to, well, ascribe to artists, you've brought us a little, a little art genome project game for me and Tess to play very competitively. And our audience at home. And our audience at home for high stakes. So can you tell us a little bit about what we're gonna be doing? Yeah, so essentially what I'm gonna do is I've pulled up here some of the genomes, so all of the categories and the values that we've applied to some well-known artists. And I'll be listing off some of their genes one by one to see when you can guess who it is that I am talking about. Okay, so starting with our first artist, one gene applied is pixelated. Artist uses a photographic source for their works. Tess is taking notes here and of, the, notes. Of, this, of the genes. <laughs> Face. Hyperrealism. Chuck Close. Bingo. Oh, damn it. Shablam. All right. Got distracted right. by my note taking. Next up, Tess, you can <laughs> still catch it. up. It. Here, and I'm going to try to make these a little bit harder and harder. This artist is part of the identity politics movement, uh, working primarily in the 1990s deals with racial and ethnic identity in his or her work. Can I guess? Yes. David Hammonds? Nope. Glenn Ligon? Silhouettes is the next. Oh, uh, Kara Walker. And Isaac takes the second one. Getting a little more difficult. Um, This artist is post-minimal, uses ephemeral materials, went to the Yale University School of Art. Ah, that that helps is interested in psychoanalysis, makes abstract sculpture, what? What? is from the United States, but has a low value for also being from Germany. It's a really tough one. Working primarily in the 1970s. 1970s, post-minimal, ephemeral. Worked in resin. Resin. Used common materials. Eva Hess? Yes. Wow. Tess. Get one. That was a hard one. Uh, I think that means that I've won this game, Tess, two to one, if I'm... <sighs> Next yeah. time. I get Carl Castle's voice on my home answering machine now, I think. <laughs> so, moving on. A little while ago, Sarah, you wrote a piece about color in art, and this was, you know, very scientific, very historical look at the way in which kind of things we don't know or don't think about like color um, play an important role in actually how final painting materializes. So can you tell me a little bit more about why it's important to look at like the history of color? Yeah, I mean, I think viewers today and me especially when I look at a work of art 
from today or from long ago, I don't take into account the pigments that were available. I think viewers today take for granted the fact that artists have pretty much the entire rainbow at their disposal, whereas for many centuries, that was not the case. And part of the reason why artworks look the way they do is because of the pigments that were that were there. Um, and so trying to figure out why things look the way they do is what I did. So has it kind of changed the way you look at art now? Yeah, for sure. I thought in going and looking a little bit more into pigment history, it was going to show me the limitations that artists had long ago. But it actually really expanded the way I thought about those works because these pigments all came with a story. They came from all across the world. They were all discovered in different ways. And it really made the art object as the nexus for all this age of exploration and discovery. Whereas paintings today, you know, they all come from the same paint store and it has less of that mystique. Yeah, and I'm kind of thinking a little bit about um, impressionists and like paint being put in tubes and how like some art movements that we kind of take for granted as like being obviously historical, they just happened, were actually influenced by the technology of paint that was available at the time. That's one of the most famous examples of what pigments can do, that when they were bottled up really for the first time, people went outside, uh, the Impressionists took their easels outside, en plein air is the French term for I, it. I didn't want to try and pronounce it and, <laughs> and, and embarrass myself, so... No problem. I gotcha covered. <laughs> Thank you. But what I didn't know is that the fact that the Impressionists turned away from black and turned to purple for shadows, I think Monet once said that, you know, the whole atmosphere is purple, was really another thing that came out of changes in the pigments available. When paints were able to be put in tubes, one pigment that was invented was manganese violet. And beforehand, uh, artists really had to mix red and blue to make purple. There wasn't an opaque purple color available in one tube. And the fact that it was in the late 19th century enabled the Impressionists to make works the so, way they did. So the innovation there was that the tubes enabled the pre-mixing of paint? or Well, there was also just more synthetic pigments being able to be invented couldn't they the, the, the tubes meant that they could take paint outside with them how did that actually affect the different shades it's hard to know whether the fact that so many new pigments were invented at that time was correlational or causational with the fact that pigments no longer had to be stored in a pig's bladder in a studio and could be taken outside gross so gross oh my yeah God. think about that when you look at your next rembrandt Ew. <laughs> i don't i don't want to. the studio did not s smell wonderful <laughs> to me it was reading this it was just really humbling to discover the lengths that people went to to create materials in order to express themselves and like there's one detail i think where a yellow pigment was made by feeding cows mangoes and that they mm -hmm. then would capture their urine and, and incorporate it into pigments i mean it just seems mad how yeah. did they yeah like how did anyone think to do like let's give them some mangoes i what, well, what was the thought process there it was really european exploration discovering pigments that had been created in places for a long long time but actually in that case in the very early 20th century some animal activists stopped that practice because they thought it was inhumane for the cows and buffaloes who were forced to eat those mangoes shame but I that mean, is a yellow featured in Turner's shame paintings. Shame they were forced to eat mangoes, not shame that we stopped cruelty to animals, just to clarify my position. But in, in what other ways besides, you know, um, tubes, did broader 
societal trends kind of influence the way we see color in art like i'm thinking about the cost of pigments and sort of you know paintings for a long time were created to show wealth how did these things interact yeah i mean it's no surprise that for a long time in art history the main patrons were the state or the church because making art was very expensive especially making art with the brightest most durable pigments because those pigments came from far far away one of my favorite stories is about this cochineal red, which is actually a pigment still used today, and it came largely from Mexico in the 16th century, and it's an insect that grows on prickly pear cacti, and it became uh, such a big export that the people in Mexico at the time were growing these cacti so much that people were afraid of famine because they no longer were growing food. And beyond beyond like causing food shortages, pigments have also been known to cause death. So. And, and of one very famous death. Yeah, potentially Napoleon. And it does start with a color, green. Shields green, to be specific, and it was invented in 1775, and it contained arsenic. But it was extremely popular because it was the brightest green out there, and it was especially popular for wallpaper. For some reason, people love to be in a green room. So wh- where does Napoleon come into this? Well, he died in 1821 in exile on an island in the Atlantic Ocean. And then in the 20th century, someone tested one of his hairs and found that it contained traces of arsenic, and people were wondering whether he was poisoned. And then in 1980, the story was told on BBC Radio, and somebody revealed that their ancestor had surreptitiously stolen some of his wallpaper, and they tested it, and lo and behold, what do you think is on there? Do you remember the name? Uh, Shields Green. Green. You got it, folks. Nice. Um, and it's really interesting because a updated version of this color called Paris Green, also containing arsenic, is often the green used in Impressionist painting as well. Well, I think that's a good note to end it on. I want to just say thanks to our guests, Tess. Thanks, Isaac. And of course, Sarah, you d- amazing, amazing first performance. We hope to get you back on the podcast soon. We'd love to come back. Please remember to rate and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. We got production help from... Abigail Kane and Joe Sykes. Our theme music is broke for free. See you guys next time.